We once again find ourselves in Acts chapter 2, and we will begin here at verse 42, if you'd like to make your way there, and let's read together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together uh, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor uh, with all the people." And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we continue looking at Acts chapter 2 in our series entitled The Spirit of the Church, I remind ourselves once again that we are looking at this because 20 years ago when this church began, we drew principles from this chapter to really uh, use as uh, foundational stones to the Uh, work of this church, believing that what God architected and designed and established then is what God wanted to continue today. And we saw him lay out before us that the the church needed to be a spirit-led church, which we discussed. Number two, a church that engaged the culture. Number three, a church that was evangelistic. And as we get into the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh items, As we are looking at verse 42 specifically and breaking down in great detail each of the four components that Luke felt it important to record for us to let us know how this new church occupied their time together. And as the church grew, as you remember, it started out as 120 disciples there in the upper room. Peter then preached his first uh, evangelistic sermon to Jewish individuals who were gathered there in Jerusalem, and 3,000 of them came to faith in Christ. As a result, the church now was growing exponentially, and they now devoted themselves, their attention to, the priority was given, they devoted themselves, even in the uh, face of resistance possibly, to the following four things. To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now we've been looking at each one of these a little bit closely. And as we come to the third of the four, the breaking of bread, we begin to look to see how intimacy was gained amongst the fellowship there in the early church. And as we look together in verse 42, that word devoted tells us that this was priority, even in the face of possible adversity. They devoted themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, which we have looked at already, and now to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is a twofold uh, time where they would observe communion together, the Lord's Supper together, and then they would move into what was known in the early church as the love feast. 
And in fact, this continued even in the Gentile churches as Paul, as we will notice Paul addressing in 1 Corinthians. And it was a time where they got together and they gave a portion of their time together to first remember the Lord's sacrifice there in communion and then begin to share a meal together as Christians. And this was the manner in which intimacy was gained amongst the early fellowship And it was something that they um, made sure that they participated in. In that culture at that time, one of the most intimate actions two people could enter into was to eat a meal together. This was something that Jewish families uh, revered. They needed to spend time with the family in sharing a meal together. It was one of the most intimate times of the day amongst a Jewish family. It was so sacred to the Jewish heart that Gentiles were not allowed to partake in meals with Jewish people at this time. This was something that was very sacred and separate. The belief was that if you ate a meal with another individual, you became one with that individual. And so they felt that with Gentiles, it would be an act of defiling themselves, and therefore they were very careful not to enter in to a meal with someone that wasn't Jewish or part of their family. So the early church involving themselves in this practice shows us and demonstrates that this new commonality in Christ that they all enjoyed and experienced led them to want to uh, become intimate with one another through this breaking of bread, through this time of meal together. It was a manner in which they were establishing their relationships. And often, as we see from our text, I believe it is implied that it is the social standing that is being um, removed that, that degree of separation through social standing, meaning wealthy from poor, etc., was being eliminated through this meal. And they were all becoming brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it was an incredibly important aspect of the early church. This is where we will see foundationally this intimacy developed, this union, this oneship, this this new unity was all being uh, exercised and it was being explored together in these times of taking a meal together. Now today it's the same thing. Do you know the number one um, activity for a first date is what? Can anybody guess? Dinner. Going to dinner. Exactly. It's still a very intimate moment between two people to have a meal together. Families still get together around a large table often for mealtime. And it's at that moment that intimacy is gained in the family. So we see the uh, origins of this going all the way back to the time of the Bible. And we see that many today still practice these things in hopes of gaining intimacy with the person that they're eating with. As you look here in verse 46 with me, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. 
So they began to spend this time together in intimacy. This was a cornerstone of their fellowship, that their fellowship possibly was defined by this breaking of bread and prayers. There are some who make that argument that I think needs to be considered. But it was imperative that they added this to their portion of getting together one with another. I'm always encouraged when couples or individuals from our church go out to lunch with others from our church. It's a great way to get to know people. Inviting uh, someone you don't know that well to uh, have lunch with you and so on and so forth, meet you for coffee during the week. It's a wonderful opportunity to get to know people and to create that intimacy amongst one another. But that intimacy isn't solely based on just that meal. Let us not forget that they began this meal by partaking in communion together. Notice with me that Paul added in Acts 20 verse 7 that on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, and it is undoubtedly he is speaking of communion there, taking and remembering the sacrifice that the Lord had made on their behalf in the manner of communion. That's how it all started. They would be surround, they'd often be around a table. They would break the bread and take of the wine and remember the Lord in their mists. And then they would follow it up with a meal together, which would then be called the love feast. And this is where this intimacy all began. But I want to understand communion because I believe that in the breaking of bread here in our text in verse 42, it is a combination of both the breaking of bread in communion and the breaking of bread in the mealtime. And I believe that's what Luke wanted to stress to all of us, that the remembering of Christ and the sacrifice in which he made on our behalf was the focal point of their intimacy. It was the focal point of their fellowship. It was the focal point of their unity. That he provided something for, for them that they could never have provided for themselves. And so before they met with others and gained intimacy with one another, they first remembered that relationship they had with Jesus, and then they could venture into the relationships with one another. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, the writer of the book of Acts who records for us the institution of the Lord's Supper in verse 14 of Luke 22. And I wanted to read this together to remind us of what the Lord had done there to establish this rite of communion. Luke twenty-two fourteen, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus Christ is taking the uh, God-introduced Passover meal, and he is now going to redefine it in the new covenant. He is taking a meal that every Jewish person would be so accustomed to and aware of and conscientious of. And he is going to redefine it based upon what he is about to do. Predicating and demonstrating that the Passover was a mere shadow of what was yet still to come. 
And he says to his disciples very clearly, I have waited, I have longed for, I have earnestly waited to have this meal with you before I suffer. This would have gotten their attention. It shows that this was something that was already in the works prior to them gathering there at that moment to have this meal together. In verse 16, he says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now he is saying that not only has he looked forward to this, but this meal he is not going to partake in again until all is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, This is the Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Still future. Something that was still yet to be looked forward to. But he is about to inaugurate this coming in what he is about to do, and that is to go to the cross and then rise on the third day. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, And gave it to him, saying, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, with which of them could it be who is going to do this? In this moment, Jesus did something that was completely unprecedented. He now refocuses their attention from their Passover meal to what he is yet about to do claiming that he will not do this again until he does it until the king, when the kingdom of God is established, meaning that there is an inauguration but yet fulfillment to be, to be had. And then he tells them that this bread represents my body, this wine represents my blood. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. And you remember that when God established the Passover meal with Moses, he did so for a very specific purpose. He wanted it to memorialize the events that were yet about to take place, just as Christ is doing. And in the Passover meal, the cornerstone of it, the focal point of it, was the necessity of a lamb that was without spot or without blemish, and that lamb was to be sacrificed. Then it was meant to be eaten. And then the blood of that lamb was meant to cover the ladle or the doorposts of the home, and death then was going to pass over that home. If you read with me here in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt... This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
This Passover, this leading out of Egypt, was meant to be a demarcation to say, a new life is beginning in the deliverance that I am providing for you through Moses. This is the beginning of your new life with me as I lead you out of Egypt. That's what the Lord is saying here. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take take according to the number of persons, according to which each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You will take it from the sheep or from the goats. And it shall be kept until the 14th day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. When the Lord rode in, I believe that he rode in on the 10th day of this same month, and he was presenting himself to the religious leaders as they then chose to reject him as their Messiah, but he was presenting himself as this lamb was to be presented. This lamb presented on the 10th day was a a moment where the lamb then could be inspected for four days to make sure that the lamb was sufficient for sacrifice, then to be killed on the, the four days later. And if you look how that plays out, that's very similar to the manner in which Christ came into Jerusalem and then several days later he was brought and he was executed before all the people on the cross, slaughtered in that same manner. In verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house and each where they ate. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roast on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat any of the raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall Let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Be prepared. It's time to go. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For Jesus Christ introduced this new image to his disciples, he was introducing to them that this is it. This is the new covenant that you have all been waiting for, that you've all been waiting for. The lamb is myself, for the bread represents my body, for the wine represents my blood. I am the lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world. It is interesting that it was the firstborn that was struck by God here in Egypt. And for Christ, he is the firstborn and now he is being struck on our behalf for our sins. 
And he is establishing in the hearers of all of his disciples that something extraordinary is about to take place. And please know that with my death and resurrection, I will establish my covenant, my new covenant with you, and you shall never be the same again if you believe in faith and who I am. That's what he's saying. And so he takes that moment to re-establish in the minds and the hearts of the people this new covenant. And this is communion. When we take of the bread and when we take of the cup, we are saying that we are doing this in remembrance of what Christ has done on our behalf. And we see throughout the New Testament that this became a, a practice that was practiced not only by the new Jewish Christians, but by the Gentile Christians also. Those who did not have Judaism as a background and a tradition who came to Christ through the preaching of Paul and others who were led into the Gentile communities. But a problem started. The love feast started losing its intimacy, its meaning, its, uh, its authenticity because people were approaching it in the wrong manner. And if you will, I'd like to show you that and demonstrate that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you will. There was a problem in the church in Corinth. When they came and gathered on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, as they were occupying themselves in teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers, something began to happen. There were those amongst them that were not taking this seriously. And as a result, God appeared to judge many of them for not taking communion properly with the right heart, with the right attitude. And as a result, we will discover that some were made ill. Some even died as a result, according to Paul. Pretty serious stuff. But as we read here, we find that they approached this in such an ill manner that God needed to deal with them in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. This is a problem, he's saying. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. First thing, there was cliques within the church. And I believe that he is uh, addressing the issue of the social standards being um, observed once again that were eliminated by this communion and feast earlier on in the church's existence where rich and poor did not see themselves as different, but brothers and sisters in Christ. And it appears now that this has regained traction, and once again their fellowship over social standards was now being separated, and divisions amongst them, where the wealthy would get together and the poor would be excluded, etc. And Paul corrects them for this. And he says that true, genuine Christianity will be uh, known. And how is he meaning that? By them not separating in these particular cliques. 
And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Something is really out. Here's what's happening. Everybody was meant to get a portion of the meal. That's where the intimacy came from. Everybody was meant to get a little bit, so no one went hungry. But if you've ever been in a buffet line, and you're behind a person, and you know that there's only one piece of steak left, and they take it right before you, and you're just like, oh, I missed it by that much. These people were literally going to the feast and they were in, just in, they were gluttoning themselves and they were eating without any regards to anybody else who had possibly not eaten yet. They just simply didn't care as long as they personally were satisfied and filled. And Paul's saying, this is ridiculous. This shouldn't happen. Everybody should at least get a little bit so no one leaves there hungry. And to top it off, there were those who were leaving intoxicated because they had the wine a little bit too much. So you can see that whatever was originally established here in this, this love feast was totally being negated by this type of behavior. And so there were a rebuke on behalf of Paul towards them. And they were corrected openly for this. In verse 22, he says, what? He says, wait a minute. This shouldn't be. That's what he's saying here in the the Greek word that is used there. This should not be. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? <laughs> no, I will not. That's what he is saying. You're blowing it. And the beautiful unity that was established through these wonderful meals was now being lost because of selfishness and greed and um, lack of self-control. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup, and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the cornerstone. He's reminding them. Remember that Jesus established this to bring his disciples into unity and to remind them of the new covenant that was being established, that new covenant now playing out that Jew and Gentile would be joined together into the church as one. And he's saying here, don't you understand that your actions are negating the fundamental principle of the communion itself? That's what he's saying here. In verse 27 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so he eat of the bread and of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He is asking those who partake in communion to examine themselves before they do, hand, they do so. Check your heart. Repent of anything that you need to repent of. This is a sacred moment, he is saying. And as a result, it appears that God had now judged some of the people in weakness, illness, and even death for partaking in communion in a haphazard manner, in a manner of sin rather than in a manner of holiness. And as a result, he is showing that if we will take our hearts before the Lord, then we then can stand before Christ in the atoning work of Christ, knowing that we are cleansed by Him and our sins have been eliminated. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Now about the other things, I will give directions when I come. This was a problem. Today, I hope that we are as reverent in our taking of communion as the early church was. The presence of God in the early church was well established. In fact, when uh, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, they were immediately judged for that lie. And they were made an example before all of the body of Christ for their treachery and deception that they try to predicate upon the whole church. I think that when we partake in communion, that we first and foremost take a moment to get our hearts right with the Lord by confessing to Him anything that we need to confess before Him. Knowing that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that when we fellowship together, again, it's not the, self, the selfish attitude that is, that is forwarded or advanced, it's the selfless attitude. As these individuals were coming together and taking what was there and gluttoning themselves over it rather than waiting for everyone to partake in the meal that was provided. And Paul says this should not be. This should not take place. Because all of the value of this moment of the communion and the feast that followed was a time in which the church came together to allow that intimacy to grow, those standards to be eliminated, those walls of separation. And then the folks looking in could see that there is something dynamic taking place in this church, these followers of Jesus Christ. 
Today, unfortunately, many Christians have many different ideas and opinions concerning communion. And they vary vastly. The Reformers, 600 years ago, were greatly concerned about the manner in which communion was being handled by the Catholic Church. It was a point of contention. It was a point that they wanted to uh, discuss and to challenge, and many of them did in their writings. Today, there are four different perspectives of communion. What actually happens when an individual partakes in communion? If you'd like, it's called the essence of communion. What is the essence of communion? And depending on who you ask, you will get various different answers. Probably one of these four in which we will discuss. The Catholic tradition of the understanding of communion is called transubstantiation. I'll sum it up for you. It is the belief that the elements themselves become the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus Christ. Commissioning him to die again, to sacrifice himself again over and over and over in each particular mass that is held. And yet, this is not what Christ prescribed. This is not the tradition in which he laid down for his church, nor do we find a New Testament example of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the view held by the Roman Catholic Church. The Council of Trent teaches that after the consecration, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ are contained truly, really, and substantially in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist. And so that is their belief. And that must be partaken in each and every week for the continuation of salvation. The Reformers rejected this idea. Luther specifically did the most work on it, and he went a little bit less in the understanding of its essence, but I don't believe he went far enough. Today, in a Lutheran church, when you partake in communion, you are partaking in consubstantiation. It is the practice that believes that the Lutheran church rejects transubstantiation while insisting that the body and blood of Christ are mysteriously and supernaturally united with the bread and wine so that they are received when the latter are. This is called consubstantiation. Again, it is not substantiated in the New Testament that Christ is connected to these elements in that way. The Methodist Church devised what they call the spiritual presence view. And according to this view, this hallowed food, the bread and the wine, through the concurrence of divine power, is in verity and truth unto faithful receivers instrumentally a cause of that mystical participation where I make myself wholly theirs. So I give them in hand an actual possession of all such saving grace as my sacrificial body can yield and their souls do, not pre- and their souls do presently need. This is to them 
and in them my body. And so when you talk about communion, please understand that people have various ideas of what communion is. But communion in the scripture was never meant to repeat the sufferings of Christ over and over and over again. When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished, done. It is complete. For Christ died once for sin. And that was all that was needed. It wasn't needed to be repeated or observed over and over and over again for the continuing of the abolishment of sin before God the Father. We hold to the last of the four, where it is symbolic, or the Zinglian view. According to this view, partakers of the supper merely commemorate the sacrificial work of Christ and its value to the participants consists only in the bestowal of a blessing. Simply as Christ instructed, do this in remembrance of me. It's fascinating to me that Christ would even have to instill such a thing for us to remember his sacrifice. But yet he did. And when we partake in communion together as a church, let us understand that we are doing it in remembrance of him. That it's so vastly superior to the bread and to the cup in it of themselves. What we are doing is we're remembering that. It's the focal point again of our existence as believers in Jesus Christ. The only reason we are who we are is because of the grace of God. Let us remember that as we join together in communion with one another. The individual who compiled that information was Merrill Unger, a great historian, and he said this in his conclusion. In the earliest notices of the Lord's Supper, a simple and almost literal imitation of the meal as instituted by Christ is prevalent, meaning it was simply held to and acknowledged and remembered as a moment in time where they came together just to remember that on the first day of the week, Jesus Christ died and he rose again. They, coming together on the first day of the week, Sunday, commemorated for them the resurrection. But Jesus always wants us to remember that before the resurrection could ever occur, the death first must have occurred. And this is so important for us as Christians today to recall and to remember. It is because it is the death of Jesus Christ that allows us to have the new life that we have in him. The sufferings that he went through, the manner of death that he exposed himself to, the humility that he showed, the incredible grace and love that he demonstrated. That is the reason that we stand here today. We are gathered here today. It is under that umbrella that we should never forget that the cross needed to come before the resurrection. And in closing this morning, I leave you with these words. Even living so close to the time when Jesus was crucified, they still never wanted to forget what he did on the cross. How much more important is it is for us now to never forget? To never forget.